The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Galatians 3, 23-29. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ." There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Logan. My name is Lee Eric Fesco, and as, a, as Russ said, I am the Director of Discipleship for Christ Presbyterian Church, and I want to thank Russ for uh, inviting me here to talk to you about this passage that, that Logan just read for us. I want to start with the end. I want to start with a verse that we just read, the final verse. This is verse 29. It says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. This is, this is what we call an if-then statement. If a certain condition exists, then the following is true. So the if here is, if you belong to Christ, that's the pre-existing condition, right, that Paul is giving to us. If you belong to Christ, then some good stuff happens. It boils down to this. If you are Christ's, then you are accepted by God. If you are Christ's, then you're accepted by God. If, if I were to ask for a show of hands, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I were to ask for a show of hands of how many of you would like to be accepted by God, I bet there'd be a lot of hands going up. Just a hunch. So working on that assumption, I'm going to tell you, through the Apostle Paul, how to be accepted by God. According to this verse, it just requires one pre-existing condition. You just have to belong to Christ. That's it. That's it. That's all. So how do we do that? And and that's always the question. What do we have to do to be accepted by God? What must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I obtain that pre-existing condition? And interestingly interestingly enough, uh, to get to that if-then statement Paul is making here, he first talks about the law. So what we want to do today is navigate our way through this brief passage that brings us to a place whereby we can know for certain that we have that pre-existing condition. We want to arrive at a place whereby we can say, I belong to Christ, I belong to God, and therefore, I am accepted by God, okay? That's what we're gonna do. What I wanna disclose for you right at the start here, uh, I wanna disclose for you that I am in my late 40s. And I want you to know that I engage in some kind of exercise every single day, running, walking, or weights, and I want you to know that I have never felt older. In spite of all I do, in spite of all I do, I'm feeling my age more and more each day. Sometimes when I exercise, I hurt myself, okay? That, at least to me, seems counterintuitive. 
You exercise to stay healthy, but if you exercise and by doing that you cause harm to yourself, that seems unhealthy, okay? I'm so surprised the older I get, the more I hurt. I have a pain in my elbow here that I hurt by exercising, okay? And, and it, it's, hurt, it's hurt for quite some time now. And so now I've just come to the conclusion that I guess it just hurts forever now. That's it. It's the, I'm broken, okay? It comes with age. The older you get, the more your body breaks. That's science. The other thing I believe uh, that points to my age is my increasing love for bedtime. My grandfather, by the time he hit 90, he was headed for bed at dark. And here in Middle Tennessee, it gets dark sometimes at 4.30. And he was going to bed at 4.30, 5 o'clock. Uh, that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> you know? I'm nearing that practice. My, my children, who are now 12 and 13 years old, they, want to stay up until, they wanted to stay up until midnight a few weeks ago for, for New Year's Eve. And they asked if I wanted to do, uh, do that too. And truthfully, it sounded painful. So painful. I said, that's really late, I told them. But it's New Year's Eve. And I told them, they're going to do it again next year. <laughs> and it's going to be exactly the same. Exact, exact same thing. Okay? I'm showing my age. And, and I think about the evolution of bedtime. Bedtime, uh, to my children, in a very, is a very, very bad thing. Right? When I tell my, my kids it's time to go to bed, there, there's often rioting that goes on. And, and my wife and I are nearing a place we are unable to combat the aggression here. And so I find it fascinating because I used to be just like them. I used to be just like them. I, I didn't want to go to bed. I remember this lasted well into college and even a little beyond college. It was nothing for me to want to stay up until midnight and past midnight. It was nothing at all. In fact, if I was facing an early start the next morning, no problem. I could handle it. Hey, want to go to a 10 p.m. showing? Sure, that's no problem. I can do that, all right? Absolutely not a problem. Now my wife and I get cranky when someone suggests dinner that starts after 7 o'clock, which is very trendy here in Nashville, this, this foodie town that we, we've become. Dinner at 7 o'clock, we're doing the math in our heads. A 7 o'clock start time doesn't put us home until double digits for sure, okay? <laughs> you see, to my children, bedtime represents a loss of freedom. It represents restriction. Okay, in some cases, my kids even view bedtime as a punishment. It's restrictive and keeps them from doing the things they want to do. How does bedtime move from restrictive to, in my case, freedom? Okay, this is what the Apostle Paul is asking us in the third chapter of Galatians. He's asking us to consider the law. You see, if you just read the book of Galatians and you only read the book of Galatians, you might come away thinking the law is the bad guy here. All right, that the law is the villain in this story. But I want you to remember something. I want you to remember something. The law came from God. The law is holy. We, we began our response of reading today with, Lord, your law is perfect. Okay? The law is good. Dare I say it? It's a lot like bedtime. In Isaiah 51, verse 7, the prophet is telling the people of the Lord, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. So why is it that the law feels awfully negative in the context of Galatians? It feels negative in the context of Galatians because it's being misused. And if you misuse almost anything, it goes from something useful to something destructive almost every time. This is basically what's going on in Galatians. There were false teachers who descended upon the church and they were teaching a false gospel. One that said, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do if you want to be accepted by God. Here are the pre-existing conditions. This is what you need. In order to find acceptance, yes, first, you have to have faith in Christ. That's great. 
Yes, you need that, but you also have to be Jewish too. You have to, you have to observe the law too. And then you'll have that pre-existing condition. Believe in Jesus, do some stuff, and then you're accepted. Okay? And this has Paul fired up. He's not just fired up, he's mad. He says, that's another gospel. As if there were another gospel, he says. You don't need Jesus plus the law. You need Jesus Christ plus nothing else. That's what we've been saying in this series. Jesus Christ plus nothing else. If you want to be justified before God, that is if you want to be declared righteous before God, accepted by God, then all you need is Jesus. That's it. That's great. And, And so you see, See what our natural tendency to do here is that now we go, okay, Jesus, great. So, so how do I get Jesus? What do I need to do to have Jesus? And we're right back to where we started. How do we become an heir according to the promise? That's what we're trying to go. How do we, how do we become an heir according to the promise? What promise? In the verses prior, Paul reminded us what the promise was. You see, God told Abraham that he would bring uh, about from him a huge line of heirs. A line of heirs under God's favor. And here's the best part of the promise. The covenant God made with Abraham is that he would do it by himself. He would do it on his own. Not with the cooperation of anyone else. Not with the cooperation of Abraham. Abraham was asleep. He would fulfill his promise and build this line of heirs. So again, we're asking ourselves today, how do I know if I'm numbered amongst these heirs? And the false teachers that Paul is addressing is saying, yes, you can know. You just have to believe in Jesus, do these things. And Paul is telling him, no, there's no doing. There's no doing. God promised that he would do all the doing. Obeying the law, doing the good things, living right, does nothing. It's not, it, it's not believe in him and be really good, then you're an heir. Nope. Remember, God said he would do this himself. Not in cooperation with, with Abraham, with you, or with me, or with anyone. So I don't need to do anything to be numbered amongst one of these heirs? No, you don't. No, you don't. All you need is is need. All you need is need. A belief and an understanding that you need Jesus and Jesus alone to be declared righteous before God, to be accepted by God. He takes care of your sin. He takes care of your sin and becomes the curse for you. And he gives you his righteousness. He takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. And believing this... Having faith in this exchange is all you need. This is all you need. Is belief in that. Then you're numbered amongst the heirs. Great, so I don't need the law. What good is the law? Well, not so fast. Dad, there's no school tomorrow, so can we stay up as late as we want? No bedtime? No, not quite. Bedtime is still very useful. You see, Paul tells us in verse 23 that we were held captive under the law, imprisoned. That doesn't give us the warm fuzzies, does it? Before faith came, you were imprisoned by the law. Why? Because you thought the law was something that it wasn't. You thought that it was a means of earning God's favor, but now faith, faith tells us otherwise. Faith tells you someone else has earned God's favor on your behalf. Someone else has followed the law and transferred that record over to you. So you're free. You're no longer held captive. Well, that's good, right? It's, it's, no, it's good to no longer be held captive. Well, you see, it's kind of like bedtime. Guess what? I don't have a bedtime anymore. I can stay up as late as I want every single night. I can do that, right? Uh, But I don't. Why? How did I get to this point? Though we were held captive by the law, Paul also tells us that the law was our guardian. The word he's using there is like the word for tutor or schoolmaster. When my dad was young, his parents sent him to a, we'll, we'll call it a religious school, 
And in that school, one of the classes he was required to, to take to help him be a well-rounded boy was, uh, was piano lessons. And the tutor or the schoolmaster would watch him play the piano. And as he was playing the piano, if he hit a wrong note, he would get smacked on the hands with a ruler. To this day, my dad doesn't love the piano. The schoolmaster, the impersonal schoolmaster, wasn't there to be his buddy. The schoolmaster was there acting on behalf of his parents to guide him and keep him on the straight and narrow. And if he slipped up just that much, smack, right? Prison guards and tutors. Paul isn't painting a very pretty picture of the law. In both the case of the guard and the tutor, they represent someone who restricts freedom. They represent reward and punishment. Neither reflects a character of intimacy. But, but, in the case of the tutor, you see, Paul could have stopped with prison guard. We get, that. we get that imagery. We understand that. But he uses the visual of a prison guard and a tutor. The tutor can be similar to the prison guard in many respects, especially if you're my dad as a boy taking piano lessons. But, but there is something that sets the tutor apart. The tutor's true purpose is to be instructive. The tutor's true purpose is to point beyond itself. The tutor's true purpose is to prepare you for something else. I, too, took music lessons growing up. I took piano lessons and I took guitar lessons. And, and when I first started taking guitar lessons, it wasn't very fun. When I signed up for guitar lessons, I wanted to play rock and roll songs from, from Led Zeppelin and, and Van Halen. But do you know what I was doing on my very first lesson? I was going up and down the scale, one note at a time on the fretboard, just boom, 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 and all the way up and down, all the way up and down the whole fret, nice and slow, nice and even. It wasn't very fun, all right? This isn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to play smoke on the water. But my teacher said, no, do this first. Do this first. Do this first and get good at this, all right? So yes, he was restricting my freedom. He was holding me captive. But his intention was to eventually move me on to something else, something musical. His intention was to point beyond himself. The job of a tutor is to point beyond themselves and to seek to prepare the child for his life as an adult, as a free person. So the law acting as a tutor prepares us for life as people who live under grace? Is that to say that observing the law is practice for how we should behave when, we're finally, when, when, when uh, faith finally finds us? Not quite. The tutor works a little bit differently, differently here. It's not behavior memorization. It's what the behavior is pointing to. It's what the behavior is aligning us to. The behavior points you in the direction of something. How does that work? When my kids were younger, and I'm sure many of you can identify with this, whether you have kids or not, uh, I'm sure you've seen this type of behavior in kids or even, even adults. When my kids were younger and one child would do something to hurt the other child, you'd take the offending child over to the hurt child and you said, now you apologize to your brother. And inevitably, what's the result you get? The offending child goes over to the hurt child and he gives you a, sorry. Very half-hearted, and, and half is maybe even too much credit, you know. Uh, very half-hearted, sorry. So you have to wonder, what, what good is that? What good are we doing here? What, what good did that do? He went through the motions of apologizing. He obeyed the letter of the law. Right? But did he mean it? Did he mean it? It wasn't, it wasn't sincere. So why do we make them apologize to one another if they're not even sincere in the moment? Because there's something else going on in that moment aside from going through the motions of an apology. We don't apologize so we get good at apologizing. We don't do it so it becomes easier the next time. In the case of a child, and again, this works the same way in adults, the child learns what the effects of an apology produce, whether they 
mean it or not in the moment. The child experiences the effects of restored fellowship, whether or not they meant the apology. The apology is meant to direct their attention outside of themselves and focus on something other than themselves. Even when you're forcing your kids to apologize, you're asking them to direct their attention outside of themselves. This is the instructive nature of the law. Paul is telling us there's something to this because if it was only about the promise of God made to Abraham, we wouldn't need the law. If God told Abraham that it would be God alone that upholds the terms of the covenant, that it would be his righteousness and not ours, that would, would, that would be God alone, not, not God with Abraham's cooperation that would bring about these heirs, then we wouldn't need the law. The promise would be enough. But then 430 years after he made that promise came the law. The promise was made, I'll take care of it myself. I'll do it all on my own terms. But then 430 years later, here's the law. Here's the law. The fact that he gave the law doesn't change the terms of the original covenant that he made with Abraham. That's still binding. He swore by himself and to himself that he would do it. So why the law? This is what John Stott says. After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off of man's respectability and disclose what he really is underneath, sinful, rebellious, guilty, under judgment, under judgment of God and helpless to save himself. And he goes on to say, no man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. You see the instructive nature of the law? Look up. Look away from yourself. Look outside of yourself. It, you won't find your answer, answers in yourself. If you only look for answers in yourself, you'll never be saved. So the law tells us, and if you listen really closely to the law, you'll hear this. It tells us, here's the law. Here's the standard. And you can't do this. Look at the law and you'll see what it's saying because, because it gives us a standard and embedded into that law is what you're supposed to do when you fail at it. Here's the standard, and when you fail at it, perform this sacrifice. It's all embedded in the law together. This is what the law teaches us. It teaches us you can't do this. It teaches us and points us to our need for a savior, our need of someone who can observe the law on our behalf and then give us the credit for it. And so you get there. Your eyes are opened. You've learned your lesson that you can't get there on your own. Now you need, uh, that you need someone else to do it on your behalf. And so now what? What do I need the law for now? I get it. I've learned the lesson. You see, what we have a tendency to do is this. We have a tendency to say, okay, I get it. Jesus Christ plus nothing else. I get it and now I'm saved. But then we still have a tendency to use the law to tell ourselves, okay, now I'll use the law to get extra credit. I know I'm saved, but... Could use a little extra credit, right? If I do these things, then God will be pleased with me. If I follow the letter of the law in these matters, then God will be pleased with me. Or even worse, if I don't do A, B, and C, I'll lose favor with God. We think that. That still creeps into our, our belief. Even though we're saved, even though we're people of the church, we still do this. If I do this, if I do this, then I'll have a little extra favor, right? But look, when you do that, when you, when you try holding up your good things before God as a means of finding favor with him, you're actually seeing a smaller picture of God. 
You're attempting to make God smaller. I don't know how you feel about clothes shopping, but my wife and I are very different in this practice. When I shop for clothes for myself, I, I have the one and done approach, okay? That is, for instance, if I'm shopping for some pants online, I will order the pants, and when the item shows up, I expect them to fit just right. I expect them to fit and look exactly how I imagine them in my head. My wife, on the other hand, has no problem ordering 50 different dresses to find the one that she's looking for and then returning the 49. She's it's fine with that, okay? I don't like doing that, okay? I, uh, I, 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 I like to bat a thousand when, when it comes to clothes shopping. Order one thing and keep the one thing. Now, there have been occasions where I'll order an article of clothing and I'll receive it from the retailer that sold it to me and I'll try it on and it may not be quite right, okay? Nevertheless, I'll still force the situation. If it's too small, well, it'll stretch out. I'll put it on, uh, and my wife, she won't even have to say anything. She'll just look at me with a puzzled face as if to say, what in the world? What are you wearing? What is that? Okay? And, and after receiving that look, I, I know what she thinks, but I try and minimize the situation. I would say, what? There's nothing wrong with this. It's fine. It's fine. It's not too bad. And then she'll tell me something to the effect of, don't expect me to go anywhere if you're going to be wearing that. I'm not going to go with you if you're wearing that, Okay? You see, the path of least resistance for me is to minimize the situation, to convince myself the problem is smaller than it actually is. It's fine. It's, it's not that bad. It's fine. It's fine. I can fit into this. It's fine. If I try and minimize how bad the situation is, that doesn't help me when I actually step out into public. If I don't acknowledge that the pants don't fit, that doesn't suddenly make them fit. If I, if I rely upon the law or my good works to find favor with God, then I'm going to necessarily need to minimize the scope and application of it so I can make it manageable, so I can make it small, and I can make God small too. So it fits into my world, my perception for how things should be, not his. If I'm going to try and make the law smaller so I can accomplish it, am I really seeing a full picture of God? And can I actually make the law smaller? Can I actually even do that? I teach one of our core classes at the Old Hickory campus, and this past summer we did a, a series on the parables, and I, I find the parables fascinating. I love all the parables. I really, I really do, but in particular, I really love this one because of where you find it, and where you find it really tells us what it means. Do you remember this parable? They even made a song about it. The wise man built his house upon the rock. Remember that one? Of course you do. Uh, <laughs> you, didn't need my, you didn't need my singing to remind you, right? What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, wise people build their lives upon Jesus and foolish people don't, right? They are done. Did I get it right? Well, there's really more to it. This little parable that we have turned into a song comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus doubling down on the law. It's almost like Jesus is giving us a recapitulation of the law. In fact, he starts off by saying this in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's key to understanding uh, what we're going to read here because then he details the law for us. And again, it's like he turns up the intensity. You've heard it said, do not murder. Yep, I can do that, Jesus. I've never murdered anybody. I can handle that one. Check. And then Jesus says, but even if you're angry with your brother, insult him or call him a fool, do that and you've murdered him in your heart, so you haven't accomplished that one. You've heard it said to not commit adultery. I can do that one, Jesus. I've never cheated on my spouse. Jesus, I deserve some credit for that, don't I? And then Jesus said, well, 
if you've even looked at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. And he keeps going. You've been told an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. I'm telling you, if your brother slaps you on the cheek, give him the other one. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I'm telling you to love your enemies. You see what he's doing? He's not throwing away the law. Jesus has arrived. The Savior is here. He's not throwing away the law. He's amplifying it. He's maximizing it. He's showing us its full scope. You and I, we try and minimize it to make it manageable, and he came to show us the whole scope of it. The law, it's so much more and bigger than you ever thought. It's enormous. You thought you could at least get a passing grade in the law. Now you're feeling like you can't even earn a single point. And right about the point you're really beginning to feel crushed by the law, after he details all the intricate and specific points of the law, right as you're starting to feel suffocated by it, he punctuates punctuates his statements with, the wise man built his house upon the rock, and the foolish man built his house upon the sand. You see what he's saying? You can build your house upon the rock. You can build your life around the one who has perfectly obeyed all the things I've just detailed for you. You can rely upon my righteousness and my righteousness alone and it will be as a rock. Or you can give it a shot. Always trying to move and maneuver, trying to minimize the scope of the law. You can build your life on your abilities and your good works and your observation of the law and it'll be like building a house on shifting sand. Which one do you want? One way is wise, one way is foolish. And so then it really becomes a very easy proposition. This is how you become an heir of the promise. You either rely on Jesus' ability to observe the law or you rely on your ability to observe the law. Jesus did it perfectly. And that's what's required to have any favor at all with God. Any kind of favor. Before or after faith. Okay then, I want to rely on Jesus' ability to observe the law. How do I do that? What do I need to do? Well, you just believe. Do you believe in his ability to pay for your sins on the cross? And do you believe in his ability to obey the law perfectly on your, your behalf? If you do, you're an heir of the promise you're already an heir of the promise. And there's nothing more you need. When you understand this, when you believe this, Paul tells us we are then sons of God. Why sons and not sons and daughters? That has everything to do with the status given to sons during that time when, when Paul was writing. The sons received all the inheritance. Daughters did not. Sons carried on the family name and gave you someone to pass along all your assets. And so Paul is saying when you believe in Christ's work on your behalf, then you're one of God's sons You are among those who receive the inheritance and the assets and the blessing of the Father. It's as if God has taken you and and, and he's put Christ on you, it says. You put on Christ as if it were a robe. And and this is what makes you an heir. If you believe this, then then this is all you need. Regardless of your, your race, your gender, or social standing, he's telling us. Through faith, we are all one in Christ Jesus. You are now united with Christ You are now an heir according to the promise. And the law? Because you're no longer bound by the law, because you're you're not suffocated by it, you can look at it and see it and appreciate the full scope of it and love and admire it and see Jesus in it. And you can love Jesus all the more for having observed every single jot and tittle of it on your behalf. 
you see your Savior in it and you begin to love it. Sort of like bedtime. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from the law. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls because what he's taken from you and what he's given to you, you are now heirs of the promise. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for the law. It's because through the law, because you defined your standard for us, you reoriented us to Christ. You pointed us to your son who alone can perfectly earn your favor and you've given him to us. You've taken his right standing and you've, you've draped it over us as a robe. You gave him our sin. You've given us his righteousness and you've made us heirs according to your promise. Thanks be to God and it's in his name, Christ's name that we pray, amen.